Welcome to another episode of Focused on Christ, where we are passionate about exalting Christ and equipping the church. I'm Mike Crump here with Pastor Nathan Smith, and as we conclude the month of November, I have a very important question, Nathan. When is the appropriate time to begin listening to Christmas music? Because <laughs> this, this is a theological I, distinction I, that's yeah, very yeah, important. Yeah. Well, are you talking like Christian music? Christmas music? No, I'm just talking about Christmas music, period. Oh, you're talking about the the mean one, Mr. Grinch. Well, song, it could be or... Grinch. It could be Silent Night. It can be, you know. Or it's the most beautiful you know, time. Here comes Santa Claus. Whatever it is. <laughs> Wonderful time of the year. <laughs> the, the question is, when are you allowed to, biblically? Uh, let me see if I can make a theological <laughs> statement on this. Don't cause your brother to stumble. <laughs> is this a meat sacrifice to idols thing? It, it, it is very that well what it could is? be. Okay. It very well could be. Yes. Yeah. See, I. Because I did radio for so many years, and Christmas music would like start <laughs> right after and, Halloween, and I would just hear it all the time. And so I burnt out on Christmas music, and so I'm a little, little. Oh man! So you really are a Grinch. I am a little bit of a Grinch when it comes to Christmas music. It has to be close to Christmas because then I enjoy it as I'm, you know, celebrating. Did everybody hear that listening? Yeah, but my You're my a mean one, my assistant. Morgan, she plays it like all year round. Oh, okay. So, so Morgan, Morgan is celebrating the Christmas cheer Jesus in the all year long, year round, and you exactly. only want to celebrate him just for a couple wow, of weeks. Really, you're going to go there? Okay. Well, you know, Christmas, Christ, Christmas, you know, more of Christ. That's what Christmas means. Anyways, just keep going, Mike. Let's go. Okay. Well, anyway, um, today we're going to be looking at out of the important things. Yes, we're we going to be looking in the book of Thessalonians and asking the question: How do we live a life pleasing to God? And uh, before we get into that conversation, Nathan, maybe you can help us mm-hmm. with the context of First Thessalonians. Thessalonians was written to Thessalonica, which was the capital of the province there in Greece. It's the same site as present-day uh, Thessaloniki, mm-hmm. which is, there's the modern-day city. There's actually some very impressive ruins there. Yeah. But the church there was struggling. There had been some persecution, maybe even some who had been killed for the faith. And so Paul is writing to encourage them to stay steadfast. And also, there, you can see in the book of 1 Thessalonians some of the hope mm. of, the, of after death, the, yeah. the, the, the living Christ, the return of Christ. It's interesting, 1 Thessalonians is actually, if not the first book that Paul wrote, it's one of the first really? books that Paul wrote. Okay. Yeah. So this would have been a book that would have been circulating pretty early on in the history of the church, at least for the first few decades, no question. Okay. That's good to know. And so starting off here in 1 Thessalonians, we're actually going to be looking at chapter 4 because here we have some great instruction from Paul, um, and we're just going to walk through what it is to really live a life towards Christ. Um, And he writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, Mm -hmm. just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so when I read that, oftentimes in my mind, because we've been talking the kind of that tension between works and faith. We talked about that when we went through James. What does it mean to please God? Because isn't he already pleased with us because of Christ? It's a great question, Mike. Um, And as we think about it, maybe it might be helpful to first step back and say, in the Old Testament, what do we have? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is going way back yeah. in one of our earlier podcasts where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right. Yeah. So we have this, this, this statement to love God. Mm-hmm. And then the law proceeds out of that love. So love God. And the Old Testament law was the means by which you demonstrated your love for Yahweh. Mm. The law was not the means of being made right with God, but it was the way that the love of God was demonstrated. 
Um, when we look at the New Testament, sometimes, especially in the modern church, we emphasize grace at the expense of uh, a life that should exhibit or flow from yeah. grace. So love God based upon his goodness and character, and mm-hmm. like Moses, uh, sorry, Moses, um, Abraham did. He believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and then he obeyed God. Okay? Yeah. Same thing with the law. The New Testament, we're saved through Christ, the grace of God and salvation in Christ. And then the apostle Paul, it's almost like he's writing a New Testament law. Mm. Uh, like this is this is the way you live out what Christ has accomplished for you. Gotcha. This is the way you demonstrate your love and fidelity to him. Mm. And this life is pleasing to God. It delights the heart of God. It mm. makes God smile. From a position of, of satisfaction, you ask, you know, isn't God already pleased with us? Yeah. The answer is yes, positionally. And in terms of uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are made right with him. We're reconciled with him. He, he makes us holy, gives mm. us his righteousness. But now he wants us to live that out. And that honors him. That, yeah. that, that, that shows the value of his name. That pleases and, and demonstrates his heart of, of, of affection uh, in the way that we are conducting ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, the, the illustration that I'd used, I think I did this in, in an earlier podcast. Yeah is my children will always be my children and I will always love them. But there's definitely behaviors mm. that I find more pleasing and less yeah. pleasing. Yeah. It doesn't change the fact that they will always be my child and there's nothing that they can do that will change that position in my love for them. Yeah, And, and I think that that is a good image for That's God. That's a great analogy, yeah, yeah, for sure. So with that said, um, and I think this is where some of that tension is, what role does our personal action play in our growth towards holiness. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And kind of to your point, it's like you have been made right with God through Christ. Mm -hmm. Now live according to that new life. Yeah. And so now we have this, okay, what does our personal action, how how does that connect with that pursuit of holiness? Salvation is monergistic. That's one Mm -hmm. thing that we say. It means it was God's work alone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, now people point out and say, yes, but we have to believe. But even our faith is quickened only by the presence of the drawing Holy Spirit that opens up our heart and enables us to believe. So salvation is monergistic. Sanctification or living out the holiness that Christ has given us, we say is synergistic. Yeah. It's something that you do with. You know, synergy has to do with two parties working cooperatively to mm-hmm. accomplish a purpose. And so our holiness is synergistic where the Holy Spirit wants to partner with us and wants to empower us mm-hmm. where we learn to enjoy and appreciate the grace of God more and trust his heart as we walk through life and we learn to live him out better and better more and more mm. doesn't accomplish more salvation, but it accomplishes more joy and identity with Christ. Amen. Amen. I love, and I think Philippians 2 really paints this well in verses 12 and 13, where Paul is writing, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's that proactive personal action. You do it. You yes, do it. You do and it. Then he says, for it is God who works in you. Both, and he does it. Yes. Yeah. Both to will, so the desire, and to work. For his good pleasure. Yes. And so there you see that synergy of, yes, I am to pursue holiness personally, intentionally, yet even in that, God is working. Yes. And there is a little bit of a mystery in that, I think, because it's, it's I'm longing to do this, but it is God yet 
burdening in me this this desire towards him and yes. stirring in me through his Holy Spirit. I would say salvation demonstrates the, the grace of God, that he would reach down and rescue us. It is not a relational act in the sense that it, it's bilateral relationship. You know, mm-hmm. it, salvation is something that God does. Yeah. But relationship with God is actually most clear, the bilateral relationship, us to him, him to us, mm-hmm. is seen in sanctification, mm-hmm. where we say, God, I want to be like you. I, yeah. I want to walk with you. I want to honor you. I want to look like you. I want to talk like you. You know, yep. there's this there's this aspect. This is the child that says, I want to be like my dad. Mm. I want to be like my mom. There's a sense of relationship there that the child had no choice in their birth. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right? They had no choice in that. They came into the world. But now the relationship begins later on in life mm. where they're actually saying, I want to be. I want to walk after you. I want to. That same thing. We had no choice in the sense that in our spiritual birth, that was God's grace alone. Yeah. But now we have the opportunity to demonstrate that affection of relationship by saying, God, I want to walk with mm-hmm. you. I want to be like you. Amen. Amen. Now that's, that's a, I love the familial distinction there in that, that imagery. I think that's very helpful. So here in the, in first Thessalonians four, uh, Paul then begins walking through some aspects of that pursuit of holiness. Um, and he's saying, Hey, you ought to walk these ways. Here's what you received from us and uh, the way you are to walk towards holiness. And one of the key ones that he starts off with is um, sexual purity. Yeah. And uh, in verses 3 through 5, he says, for this is the will of God. And I think that's a huge statement. This is the will of God for you, yeah. your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we kind of touched on sanctification in this process that God is leading us on through the Holy Spirit. Um, why is sexual purity such an important part of holiness? Because it is a very, it's something God speaks to over and over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, sexual purity is something that is very prominent. Yes, like you said, from the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's almost, it's one of the first signs of fidelity to God. It's, mm. one of the, it's one of the preeminent images of holiness. Matter of fact, God uses even his description with Israel and talks about Israel being a prostituting herself yeah. and yeah. The, the imagery of immorality to describe the lack of holiness or the lack of fidelity with God. In this verse, when it says it is the will of God, your sexual or your, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, the Greek word there is the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography mm-hmm. today. Porneia has a broad term. This is not just simply the, the physical act of intercourse, but it actually is anything to do with sexual impropriety. It's a mm-hmm. very, very broad yeah. statement. He wants you to control your body in a way that honors him because it was created in holiness. Mm. And he says this, that each one of you would know how to control his own bodiness, but his own bodiness, <laughs> his own body in holiness and honor. And because you are created in the image of God, yep. you are created that in your flesh, you are to honor God. And so the very first place in which we do that, yes, is is actually even how we conduct our sexual purity. Yeah. It is not a matter of our will. This is very, very important because in our day and age, your sexuality, your gender, your identity, it's about what I want and yeah. what I feel. It's my will. But what does this verse say? It's not about your will. This is the will of God mm. that you control your body, your identity, your sexuality mm-hmm. within your created holiness. Um, sexuality is not evil and wrong. 
But sometimes we came out of almost like this Victorian mindset of thinking in the church where sexuality and sex is wrong. Like yeah. as an object, it is evil. That is actually a, um, a demonic deception. Yeah. Sexuality and sex is actually part of your created order and God has given it to you as a gift. And it's part of even the mechanics of procreation of the human race. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if it's used outside of its created intended purpose, it is sinful. Yeah. I think I've said this before from the pulpit, and I think even here, most sins are good gifts used outside of their boundaries. Yeah. So yeah. this is one of those things that sexual morality is is very, very central to our created identity. It is. And I think, you know, you talked about even the cultural perception of sexuality and it's seeing as an identity. And often it's like, well, the church is trying to say, don't do this and don't do this, but we do this. You know, it's the mm-hmm. cultural tension. But here in First Thessalonians, it points back to it says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And so it, it brings out, this is a God-ordained reality. Yeah, He has given us sex. He has given us uh, that relationship for mm-hmm. a purpose. And inside that boundaries, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's life-giving. Outside of that, it is destructive. Yes. And, uh, and it's for our good that we would listen to this. And, and our sin is first and foremost against God. Yeah. And actually sexuality or the violation of sexuality more than any other sin is directed as a first and foremost affront against God. Mm. And then secondarily against the person with whom maybe you violated that sexual boundary. Yeah. And then it says you sin against your own body. Yeah. So there, there's several different aspects in which sin is looked at through the, through the, through the veil of sexuality mm-hmm. that needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, even David in Psalm 51, after he committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba, mm-hmm. the very first line in Psalm 51 is God against you, you only. Mm. Not, not the first line, but God, it's right yeah. there the first couple of verses, God against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yeah. So he recognized first and foremost his sin was against God. Mm-hmm. As we talk about the seriousness of this, I also want to breathe hope to yeah. those who have messed up in this area, mm-hmm. either in the past or even recently. Uh, my, my, my challenge to you is take it seriously. Mm-hmm. I would say take Take it seriously and recognize that sexuality is not just a passive sin. It's a very it can it can infiltrate into our heart and mind and take a deep hold. Yeah. And if this is part of your past, confess uh, to God. Confess to a trusting spiritual authority who can keep you accountable, and then commit to work, walk in holiness going forward. Yeah. And 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 the beautiful thing is that our God is a God of redemption. Mm-hmm. Even over these Amen. type of actions. Yeah. So I think that that is that's a wonderful thing. Amen. Amen. And that kind of leads to, especially the speaking to a trusted friend, um, we go further into First Thessalonians and Paul transitions and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And mm-hmm. so here is this next aspect of pursuing holiness. It's to flee from sexual sin, but then we see this call to brotherly affection, this brotherly love. What is brotherly love? How would you characterize that? What, what do you think, Mike? First of all, I'm going to kind of direct the question back at you. Yeah. It's interesting. We're talking about lust and sexual immorality, mm-hmm. and then he moves into yeah. love. Yeah. What do you think the connection there is? 
Like if you were to look at that, because I think there is one. Yeah, I, I for me, it's it's do not be motivated by the kind of the selfish mm-hmm. lustfulness that can come in relationship. Instead, be motivated by a brotherly affection that desires the better of the other person. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a selfish consumption, which is sexual immorality, yeah. to a outward looking love that says, what can I do for you? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Because I feel like maybe most of our world, when we talk about love, what we're actually talking about is the lust. Yeah. And it may not always be sexual lust. It might be a lust for what the person can give me or mm-hmm. the way they make me feel. And mm-hmm. I love them. Why? Because of the way they make me feel. The way yeah. that, But brotherly love. So he says, don't lust like the world. Mm-hmm. Not like the, the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, matter of fact, he says, I want you to love. I want you to have this brotherly affection. Um, and you've been taught by God to love one another. Uh, and I think that that's a direct statement to look at the life of Christ. Mm. Like, how, 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 is, how did Christ love? He, he loved in complete purity and holiness, mm. self-sacrifice, gentleness, kindness, treated both men and women with dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't out of self-motivation of what they could give him yep. or how they could satisfy him. He actually gave totally of himself, uh, just, again, totally giving everything he was. Yeah. So I think it's a very, very powerful contrast to uh, the very first few verses on sexual morality. Don't love like this. Mm. Love like this. Amen. No, that's a great distinction. I appreciate you bringing that out. The, the third thing we're going to look at here is he moves into kind of working a quiet, hardworking life. Um, yeah. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. Uh, what does it mean to live quietly? I mean, that really is kind of countercultural to our the zeitgeist of today, where of it's disturbance like, and rage, yes, and activism, and make and yourself known, and, and make sure people see you, uh-huh. and all that. And here, Paul's saying, "Hey, um, live quietly, yeah, and work hard, yeah, um, be good citizens." That, that, that the, mm. the, the, the Greek mindset and the Roman mindset yeah. would have been very uh, amenable to to that statement. Yeah, I mean that any empire they would love for you to live quietly, mind your own affairs. Yeah. Paul is not calling for a social upheaval. Mm. He's calling for a theological, spiritual upheaval. Now, will that create disturbances? Yeah, we see that in history, of course. But the goal is not to create disturbance and rage, but to actually plod along steadily, quietly. Mm. Um, You know, we're, we're, we're in this holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas and then a new year mm-hmm. and all this. And there's an aspect in which <laughs> oh, we just kind of want to keep plodding along. Yeah. And as we go into a new year, there's this, okay, enjoy what the Lord has done, what he's doing, but just keep mm-hmm. plodding forward. The goal is not this vast social upheaval and disturbance, but just steadfast walking, enjoying the seasons that God has given living sacrificially, living intentionally, mm-hmm. um, making sure that you're taking care of your own affairs well. Yeah. Um, in other words, like, hey, mind your own family. Yeah. Uh, take care of your marriage. Take care of your kids. Stop thinking that everybody else is doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And start with yourself. And then and then to walk properly in the way you love others yeah. and conduct yourselves. So, so the, the image of Scripture is really one of uh, this, uh, this good citizen 
under God, under government, mm-hmm. um, not raging in activism, but in holiness and righteousness. Yeah. And let that be, if disturbance happens, let it be because of your righteousness and holiness and your testimony, Yeah, not because of your political or social mm-hmm. agenda. Yeah, we are to be the Jesus people, not the political people. Yes, very much. And we should be marked by that. And I just think there's something that comes with the stability mm-hmm. of a life lived in this manner. Yeah. That because our world is, especially now we see it a lot, but in general, it's just chaotic. Mm-hmm. And people's lives are chaotic. And sin is ravaging families. It is ravaging societies. And when a Christian community mm-hmm. together can have a sense of stability, mm-hmm. of brotherly affection, where there people can look into that and go, what in the world is happening here? Yeah. You're not raging? You're not just going crazy here? No, we genuinely care for one another. We can, you know, yes. that speaks to the power of Christ. Yes. The world rages. The church is supposed to be an anchor of stability and quiet holiness and righteousness yeah. with loud voices of uncompromising Christological love. Yes. Like, this is who Jesus is. Yep. This is what he has done. Yep. And then we're going to live in light of him. Yeah. What part, and we kind of touched on this, but what role does the church play in this process of sanctification? Uh, it's not just an ingredient. It is the key ingredient. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I would describe it this way. If, if, if you're, wor- if the, if the, uh, if if your disciplines of prayer and Bible reading are the, the, the fertilizer that allows your plant to grow, yeah. the church is the greenhouse. Hmm. The, the, the church is a community of other plants all growing in the same place. And they're encouraging one another. Uh, there's a place of accountability. Mm-hmm. There's a community of protection. Um, if you take that plant, okay, mm-hmm. with it, you're still doing your Bible reading and you're doing your disciplines. You take it outside of the greenhouse in the dead of winter. All of a sudden, that life is going to shrivel mm. because it's exposed to the elements and doesn't have the blessing and that covering of protection. Mm-hmm. And this world is a cold, hostile place. And Christians who think they can go it alone, yeah. uh, for one, their spiritual life will never be what it could be yeah. by themselves. God has designed us as a community of <laughs> community of flowers in a greenhouse to flourish together. Yeah. And together, uh, I think that the church is that 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 context, that environment mm-hmm. in which the spiritual life is really able to thrive. Amen. Amen. Well, Nathan, thank you. I, I really like that imagery. You're just full of all sorts of great imagery today. Thank oh, you for man. that. Wow. But not not last time or the time before. No, not before. But now, today, finally, <laughs> as finally. we're coming to the end of this oh, year, man. you've done it. So, all right, there we go. Uh, thank you for that, Nathan. And thank you all for listening. We pray that this podcast is a source of encouragement for you as you follow after Jesus. If you have any questions about something we shared, a theological topic, scripture passage, you can feel free to email us at any time, mm-hmm. questions at focusedonchrist.com or visit us online at focusedonchrist.com.